Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. And for purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme— Today's episode is about theater. It's about how we come together to tell our stories, and it's about the magic of imagination. It was the famous bard, William Shakespeare, who said all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their entrances, they have their exits, and one man in his time may play many parts. The history of theater goes back thousands of years to ancient Greece. With the famed pageant plays to honor the Greek god Dionysus and innovations of the genres of comedy and tragedy. Well, the theater has come a long way in that time. And we have in the collection of that unique art form stories that inspire us to be bold, that make us cry, that make us laugh. And indeed, in my time, theater played a pivotal role in shaping our collective identities, not just on our side of the Atlantic, but indeed across the pond as well. And my friends, today we have a special guest, a a local actor, who will come and talk to us about theater in the 18th century. And I do believe he's here just now. Good day, sir. Please sit down. Now to introduce him, Colonel Alex Morse is almost a 20-year veteran of everything 18th century theater. He has been performing and teaching this subject at Colonial Williamsburg for the past 15 years. He is a professional actor and playwright. He is currently in a master's program for screenwriting, hoping to make the leap from producing words for stages to writing words for film. He loves a good game of cards while sipping an ale with good company. Colonel Morse, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Be Frank. Oh, thank you so much. This is an honor to be here. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've been smiling all day just to get here. Oh, the honor is mine. You are a flatterer, sir. <laughs> Maybe. Yes. Now, if I can inquire, you say you are a colonel? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I am... Colonel Alex Morris. That is uh, the Kentucky Colonel aspect of it, which is sort of a, a fraternity, if you will, of honorarium gentlemen for doing good deeds, if you will. I see. It, you know, it might surprise you to know, Colonel, that for a time I too uh, was a Colonel of the Pennsylvania Militia. Oh, well, good evening, Colonel. 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 Let's begin. Now, Colonel, mm-hmm. we're here today to talk about the theater. 
the transformational space that shapes society. Mm-hmm. And now, I suspect for our listeners in the modern day, no doubt they're shaped by stories. They are consumers of stories. And I suspect over the course of time, we can see that as a through line. We all have a powerful need of stories. Uh, but for this unique period, the Age of Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, it could be conceived that the theater of that time is something which is you know, unrecognizable by today's standards. So can we begin, Colonel, with conversations about the theater of the 18th century? Absolutely. I mean, I breathe this, uh, so this is exciting for me to talk about. And it's an often a time that is overlooked for whatever reason, when modern theater goers think of theater historically, they automatically jump back to Shakespeare, uh, which of course uh, is a great place to start, but the 18th century is a little bit different. Things have evolved since Shakespeare's time. Uh, Though they are still doing Shakespeare's work, uh, the idea of theater is evolving, and that's part of the Enlightenment's uh, influence, truthfully, the, the study of natural things in that um and the great place to start is just in london what would a night of theater look like in london uh you have a lot of choices in london uh at this time you have two royal playhouses which means they're sanctioned by parliament uh licensed if you will uh all plays go through uh the lord chamberlain position at this time as of 1730s um but there's still this great sense of entertainment that Londoners need. Uh, and there's two royal playhouses. There's Covent Gardens and Drury Lane, uh, not very far from each other. Uh, you buy a ticket and you have a choice of either getting the nicest seats, which are the boxed seats uh, that have great view, uh, maybe not the best sound, but definitely the great perspective of the raked stage. Then you have uh, slightly cheaper in the pit, uh, which is benches all the way back. Uh, but if you just needed a, a quick fix of theater at the cheapest rate, you could go to the gallery uh, and stand back there in the sort of the balcony area of the back. Uh, and you would be in this building, these, these royal playhouses, you know, four or five, six hours a night. Six, six hours? Six hours. I mean, think about that. That's probably on the extreme of that, but it it's a night. You get a... A main piece, which is five act, which is where Shakespeare could kind of fit into. Um, although the Ballant Opera was probably the most common form of theater to get into that slot. Uh, but that's not all. You have prologues and entreacts, music, dancing, uh, stupid human tricks, anything you can think of to entertain the, the 2000 seat theater that would have been Drury Lane or Covent Gardens for that amount of time. And then you have an afterpiece which is always a comedy. Think of, um, I always like to describe it to people who are learning about this as sort of the uh, 1970s BBC sitcom is basically what a farce was in the 18th century. 1970s BBC sitcom. I'm not sure I I follow that. No. Well, just think of it as a bunch of uh, misunderstandings uh, over something very topical in society. and a lot of entrances and exits to add to the humor. Well, that sounds like a night with my relations. Yeah, so, so you're saying, <laughs> uh, you're a delightful fellow. <laughs> you're saying that um, 
a theater was truly for for everyone. It was the great equalizer. You might sit in uh, box seats to be seen, or you you may stand. But in in truth, it, it was an element where all levels of society could see themselves reflected on stage. It is the one place in this stratosphere of society where class and uh, position is everything during this time. You know, you know when a lord is walking down the street. You know when a blacksmith is entering the building. You know this just by the way they carry themselves and the way they look and this expectation. But for whatever reason, the theater of the time became sort of this leveling of all of that. You could have a, a nobleman sitting next to a servant laughing at the same thing. And there's just something magical about that you enter into those doors and for a few hours of night there is no them and and the class structure it's truly a sense of community and unity in Mm. that even if it's just for a few hours Mm. right and and the plays are reflecting that um a lot of that has to do with the rise of the bourgeoisie or the middle class during this time uh audiences are changing you no longer is theater meant for the elite. It's for everybody. Shakespeare dabbled with that, but it really took hold mm-hmm. uh, in the late 1600s and in the 18th century. Were there certain celebrities of this age, uh, oh. household names that people would come and see, uh, watch them portray their their Hamlets, their mm-hmm. Scotsmen? Absolutely. This is the time of celebrity. This is, if you will, the, the genesis of celebrity. Um, and a lot of that, I think, uh, had to do with uh, Charles II's restoration of theater uh, in 1660, and that just kind of carried over. But women being allowed on the stage as of 1660, publicly, legally, uh, like one of the top royal decrees of Charles II's reign uh, in that. And it, you just moved to this rise of celebrity because of those women, and as well as this new style of theater that is coming into play, which is the natural law of acting, is what they refer to it as. Today, we would refer to it as, um, it's sort of the beginnings of uh, method acting, or uh, you see something in nature, you mirror it or mimic it, rather than trying to create what you think the ideal of that perfection is. And that's getting really into the weeds. But uh, that that's what's happening. So you have people like Charles Macklin and the Hallams, uh, who are sort of like the modern-day Baldwins or Barrymores. Uh, you have David Garrick, who just solidifies what celebrity is as he makes his rise through the London stage in the um, 1740s and uh, 1750s, becoming one of the great theater managers of the day, of all time in English history. Uh, it is, you know, he's the first one that whispered the Hamlet soliloquy to be or not to be, and it drove critics crazy because they couldn't hear him as well. But he had been studying the lunatics in Bedlam and said if, if they are mad, they don't gesture and posture like the Italian operas do. They, they get down in and take it in. And he did that, and audiences, for the first time, 2,000 people leaned in. And, you know... It was known that people would wait four to five hours to get into the theater to hear David Garrick speak. Extraordinary. It's, it would have been a wonderful time to see. 
I'm fascinated by this concept of theater growing more and more natural, mm -hmm. more and more realistic. In your estimation, Colonel, do you think that has any reflection on the dramatic times that are shaped, particularly on this side of the Atlantic, theater mm. growing more real and therefore a people desiring to emulate that in their daily life, craft great orations, commit dramatic events in, in some. Is there any connection between that natural concept of something growing more real on stage and because of that, inversely, the desire for people to take real events and make them more dramatic, more fantastical, does it influence revolution oh i i think the short answer of that is absolutely um this natural law of acting is teaching actors both men and women and and anyone involved in the art of presenting oration this idea of in in order for the going back to the bourgeoisie or the middle class the workers of, of the english empire which includes the americas particularly the middle class uh, the majority of the middle class audience uh, is, or excuse me, the, most of the Americans are what we would consider in the 18th century middle class. There's the highest level is gentry really here that are attending a theater in a colonial American playhouse. You know, there's no kings or queens per se here in America. You know, you got gentry, which is the lowest of the nobility, I guess, in the sense of London's class system. But... So those people, those middle-class citizens who work with their hands and who go home and raise their children by fireside reading the plays, when they go see it done professionally and this natural law, it's something that they can connect to and encourage them. And, and here's the thing, Colonel. Everyone is watching the same thing. And we just talked about that, that classism. And in America, it's including in the enslaved all the way up to the to those who own the slaves are laughing and being moved by the same thing. And I think there's one of those aha moments hmm. in, in a night of theater. I, I, I can only envision uh, Colonel George Washington looking, you know, who preferred the pit, the, the benches, because uh, he could hear better, sitting next to uh, an enslaved man who had enough coin to go see the show. And they, they are moved by the same characters presented in that natural law. And there has to be that, that moment where Colonel Washington is, he's laughing at the same things I am, hmm. right? He's, is he more than just property, right? I'm, I'm not saying that that definitively happened, but who's to say it didn't? No, but in, in an age where we declare boldly that all are created equal, it seems to me, in my estimation, that theater is one of the few places where that is a reality. I think it can be a reality, and particularly with what is happening in American theater. Uh, now, fully understand the, what, well, there really is no concept of American theater. These are all the latest hits, latest productions from London that the theater company in America is doing. They are doing the latest hits of the London stage. So for us, that would be the off, 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 off Broadway of that. So the plays that are being written for England are very nationalistic and they, they contain themes that are supporting the science and the enlightenment and the idea of uh, individuality 
and democracy and republic, all that are being expressed. A great example of that is Joseph Addison's Cato, uh, probably the most successful play of the 18th century alongside with the Beggar's Opera, written by Joseph Addison. He's a member of parliament. And the story that's being focused on in the 18th century is the love story because everybody knew about Cato. He's the last Roman senator to stand against Caesar for the Republic. But the love story was fictionalized in that universe and people just latched onto it. Uh, but all the while you have the concept of young love crossing uh, ethnic boundaries because the love interest in Cato is Juba, who's a Nubian prince or African prince, uh, and Cato's daughter, who was 99% sure portrayed by uh, an English woman, right? And so these, uh, that being expressed on stage, even if it's just in words or poetry, that concept that here's an African prince wanting to marry, you know, a white English daughter and being applauded to do so for the most part. But that play's political set is a war about liberty and about rights. Patrick Henry uses it uh, boldly uh, in the uh, Virginia legislation when he declares, you know, give me liberty or give me death. That is lifted directly from this play of Cato. So, you know, these plays are being used as sort of pop cultural references to inspire the ideas of revolution. I, and that's not the only one. That's just the, the famous one. So we've crossed the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. We've left London with mm -hmm. several hundred thousand people. <laughs> and here we've arrived in the frontier of America, where the largest metropolis, the most bustling of cities, is 30,000 people in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So how does that spectrum of theater exist? Do you have these permanent established playhouses or is the majority of theater in North America traveling companies who are simply endeavoring to spread the stories from the height of civilization to this backwater place of the American colonies? It is definitively the latter. It is hands down the latter. It's just so funny to me, you know, it, in a logistics standpoint, you're you're right. Philadelphia, thirty thousand people strong, right? <laughs> but this traveling company from uh, London, known as the London Company of Comedians, they set sail in 1752 aboard a ship called the Charming Sally. Was supposedly rehearsing on the ship. I doubt that. That's probably propaganda. But they they come here, and instead of going to either Philadelphia or New York, even or Charleston, they go to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And it, it just blows my mind. I don't know why, you know, there's some theories of why they picked that. But they, they debuted their professional night of theater in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1752. Uh, but they quickly realized exactly what you're talking about, Colonel. That they tapped the town out after a year. Uh, so they had to travel. They then went to New York and then Philadelphia, Annapolis, uh, Charleston, Kingston, Jamaica, and just think of it as a, a circuit where they would just travel from city to city, stay about a year in every city, and then move on after that. So explain for us then, Colonel, how does something so prolific, so unifying, so democratizing 
as theater in the 18th century becomes something that's eventually banned by the First Continental Congress of 1774. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> I uh, had to ask uh, it. You have to ask it. Of course you do. Um, that's pernicious. Uh the, the reality of that is, who knows what, what eventually would become Congress were thinking in, in that. There are a handful of theories, because it is true. That is, first document produced by the association uh, announcing the resolves. Uh, to the, There's 14 resolves that are strongly encouraging citizens of America to, to follow these. Of the eighth one, said in 1773, 74, that it, all entertainments, not just theater, but horse racing, cockfighting, gaming, all that is banned or discouraged. And uh, David Douglas, who was the manager of the only professional theater company in America at the time, gets the word uh, right before they do their season in 74 in Charleston. And... This was kind of, it seemed like a shock to him, just reading in between the lines of the sources that we have. It it seems kind of as a shock to him. Um, Even after the Charleston season, because the effect didn't take place till December of 74, it it seems like they attempted to go to New York to set up season for 75 and the committees of safety, or what they were called before that. I can't remember, but eventually the Committee of Safety basically said, no, 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 Mr. Douglas, we are following the results of, of this Congress. And he's like, uh, okay. And they basically tell him to turn the ships around, and they do. And that was it for theater. Um, why did they do that? I have theories. Uh, I, it is not uncommon for governments historically present to discourage you know, frivolous spending during possible wars. I know we did it during um, many wars, uh, and many countries have done that, and it's not uncommon to do that. So it could have been that action. Uh, could have been something to, and this is what I believe, something to sort of appease the puritanical uh, aspects of the committee um, who were having issues with, I guess that's the best way to put that. Uh, personal religious issues with theater and and the effect of theater. Um, it could have just been a bone that the other associates were throwing, you know, just they're not going to really take it seriously, kind of thing, and let it go with that. And just we'll have our theaters and our back rooms and our coffee houses, but just so our puritanical uh, brothers aren't angry at us, we can we can do this. We won't eliminate the fun. We'll just get better at hiding it. Correct. Well, you know, that's human nature, <laughs> I believe. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so that, I, I, I think that may have been part of it. It could have been a combination of both. We're just not really sure what was running through uh, the minds of the individuals that were in those meetings mm. to do that. So, Colonel Morse, as an actor mm-hmm. of the 21st century... What is it about studying 18th century theater that best informs your art? Well, it's something that I discovered after studying the 18th century theater. You know, I've been uh, studying theater and performing and writing, you know, for most of my adult life. But really, I've only been invested in this time frame for about 15 years, in, in truth, and just kind of made it my life's detours, what I call it, 
uh, in that because I think it is fascinating. I think it's relevant uh, to modern actors and, and modern writers, uh, particularly as the mediums change, uh, of how they were adapting for the times of philosophy and doing social satire and things of that nature. But even going in a deeper dive, what Charles Macklin and, and some of those first ladies, uh, Mrs. Pritchard, uh, were doing and David Garrick were doing, were laying down the foundation for this concept of not using acting as a, as a tool to present the perfect ideal, but rather to hold up a mirror. And, the, and there's something so empowering about that that concept of what I am presenting, this fictional character, is, is a mirror to somebody watching me, right? And they can maybe learn from that or see the folly of bad decisions or, you know, I, and as the tradesman that an actor is, to be able to convincingly portray an emotion that I may have never truly experienced, you know, but to learn about that emotion and to try to make my body understand that. That's all happening during the 18th century. This is there are our spearhead of, of what we are today. And I just think that is a an exciting avenue of study. Mm. And it that's often overlooked. You know, and you know, the, I think the reason for that is is because, you know, you jump up to the early eighteen teens or whatever, for whatever reason, you know, even in England, they kind of revert back a little bit. I don't know if it was a sense of we need to return to the classical presentation of theater, uh, or if it just kind of died out with David Garrick and his, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, his uh, apprentices, even though that's not what they are, um, protégés, I guess that's more appropriate. Uh, they just kind of, that just kind of died out. They kind of reverted back to that whole presentational style of, of drama uh, and things of that nature. But, you know, from 17 teens to 1800, you had a lot of experimental theater going on in London and also in America because the the only company to come from London to America, because we're backwoods, uh, was the American, uh, American Company of Comedians first as the London Company. Uh, but the London Company of Comedians, they, they came out of Goodman's Fields Inn, which was sort of this experimental almost what we would call a black box theater. And that's where David Garrick was cutting his teeth. Uh, and that's where they, they came from to America. They weren't coming from Jury Lane or Covent Gardens. They were coming from these experimental backroom playhouses uh, like Goodman's Fields. Uh, and so what was coming to America was this family, basically known as the Hallams, who are just bringing this new style of theater. Here it is, America. This is what we've been working on, you know. So for the members of our Junto, uh, are there any books you would recommend on the 18th century theater or, or more than that? Uh, some of your favorite plays that our listeners can explore on their own time. I'll start with the books because uh, I will admit there's not been a lot of research done on this, which is also what's kind of exciting about that. It wasn't really until the mid-20th century that we really started getting information about what was going on in America uh, in regards to the, the professional stage. Um, a great book I recommend 
they're, they're kind of, you can get them on Amazon. But Odai Johnson, any book that Odai Johnson writes, he is the lead historian on this subject. And other than Ruins, you don't need to read Ruins. Uh, that's He does kind of a similar conversation in a later book that's way better. But he does um, Absence and Fondness of Colonial American Theater. That's a really hard book to buy, but you can try to look for it. Um, his latest book is fantastic, called London in a Box. And it's about that American company of comedians that David Douglas is managing. Uh, David Douglas, the, the easiest comparison, he's, he's a P.T. Barnum of the 18th century. Very, very good actor, very smart businessman. And so that's a great book, London in a Box. Um, so those two I'd recommend just as kind of starting points. He's a good writer. He's a good read. Uh, and his information is solid with that. Plays, uh, anything by Arthur Murphy, anything by David Garrick. And you, these are all free. You can get these off the internet if you wish. Uh, so easy access, easy reads. A lot of people think that it's old English. That is not true at all. We're in the time of modern English. Uh, there may be some jokes that go over your head, but that's true with any theater after a certain amount of time. But, uh, Susanna Centralever is an early, uh, 18th century playwright. She is really strong. George Farquhar is another good one. Uh, but She Stoops to Conquer, for example, is a great play uh, as well. Um, but the list just goes on and on. If you just search 18th century playwrights, you'll get a list. My last question is for you, Colonel. What is it about studying and teaching history that sets you on fire? For me, that is a great question. I wasn't expecting that one. Uh, for what it is for me, and this goes back to my father, who this he saw this at a very young age at me, is when I say something that makes people think bigger than me or finds something new to follow because of something I said. So it's not about giving answers. It's about opening doors and opening thought processes to other questions. And And for me, that's what I want. I don't want to tell anybody how to think. When I teach, I was like, you, you need to just see this for yourself. Of course, I have, you know, biases and things of this nature. But ultimately, what I want to do when I speak or perform or write, ultimately what I want to do is to encourage that audience member to be more than just a spectator and to take action in their own way, down their own rabbit holes, to find other curiosities that really set them on fire mm. right a remarkable answer colonel morse i want to thank you for joining us on let's be frank and moreover sir what say you and i get our coats and cloaks and hats and we go attend a night of theater together i would love that have you ever <laughs> thought about taking the stage yourself colonel? oh no no sir i could not fathom someone playing me mm. Mm. Let's bid farewell to our junto, and then we'll depart. Very well. Now, what lesson can we derive from today's installment? In looking at the theater of the 18th century and the parallels we might be able to draw today, 
We all, dear listeners, have a profound desire for stories. And more than that, we have a profound desire to see ourselves in stories. The theater encourages us to extend beyond the facets of our own lives, to imagine ourselves in situations we would never be in, to feel in those moments, to find a contract between a spectator and a performer, and in that, arrive in a silent space and in the span of two hours, leave changed. This week, dear listener, I encourage you to reevaluate the theater of your own life. Look for plays in your community. Look at soaking in some art you wouldn't otherwise experience. Look to extend outside of yourself and imagine who might you be in different circumstances. That's all for today's installment. Would that we have more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant. Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. <laughs>